Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Today I'm talking to Jennifer Otani, an entomologist at the Ag Canada Research Farm in Beaver Lodge, Alberta. So usually when we talk about insect pests, uh, we talk a lot about field crops such as canola and that sort of thing. But today we're going to talk about insect pests in forage crops. Um, So before we get right into it, though, Jennifer, would you mind introducing yourself and uh, giving a bit of a background on how you got into entomology? Yeah, sure. Uh, First of all, thanks for asking me to join the podcast today. It's actually a great opportunity to talk about forages. So my background, I've been at the Beaver Lodge Research Farm for mm, 20 some years. Um, My program is looking at pest management, but it specifically looks at insect pest management. And that entails everything from biology of insects, looking at insect plant relationships, um, looking at beneficial organisms, and especially some of the the biodiversity that actually exists in some of our field crops. And forages have turned out to be a real gold mine in terms of um, the diversity that we get in insects. And we're gonna kind of talk about this later on. But one of the really interesting things with our forage crops, particularly some of the seed production that I've been more involved with, is that we have these perennial stands that basically are are much more long-lived than our annual cropping situation. And it provides a very unique habitat compared to annual crops. So we've done a number of different projects and looked at lots of different insect groups. And I always really have a, a lot of fun talking about forages particularly grass seed production, clover, and now we're doing some more in alfalfa seed production. So as I said, I've been at the Beaver Lodge Research Farm for a number of years. I initially was hired. There was no entomologist at the Beaver Lodge Research Farm other than the apiculture program. And of course, if you're in forages, everyone's usually quite familiar with honey production. And of course, we've had um, bee scientists at Beaver Lodge for many years. They predated my arrival. Uh, so it's interesting because we've had entomologists at the farm, but not necessarily entomologists working in field crop protection until I got there. So it's been a very interesting a number of years. We've done a lot of work in lots of crops, but yeah, that's kind of my background. And in terms of how I got into entomology, This is a very funny question because, you know, right now we're going through the process of interviewing students and they'll ask me this question. And I kind of came to it in a bit of an accidental way. But when I look back at my years of study and work experience, I guess maybe I did have more of a path than I realized. I started as a a summer student, essentially, and I had the real real privilege of working with uh, weed scientists at the Lethbridge Research Centre. And again, that's with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Uh, So I started my career as a student doing field plot work, helping uh, technicians and scientists uh, like Bob Blackshaw and Jim Moyer. I was super lucky. I then actually started to work in some entomology and got to work with uh, entomologists in Lethbridge. 
And then, of course, the position came up available at Beaver Lodge. And so over the many years I've done work with weeds, insects, I've also had a chance to work in biocontrol. So when I came to Beaver Lodge, there were a lot of different opportunities for us to do a lot of work in various places. But it's always been in field crop protection. That's awesome. Uh, I guess we'll get right into to the questions and stuff. Let's start with the very basics, though. What is a pest? What, how do we qualify what, what is a pest? So this is an awesome question. And again, this is so funny because I've been asking students this same question as I interview them. Um, because many people, uh, sometimes they, their perception of a pest is not the same as what mine is. So in our realm, when we're dealing with insect pests, uh, usually we're dealing with an insect that's really in the wrong place. And it's causing us problems. So damage, um, maybe vectoring diseases, but it's essentially the end result is that this insect pest is affecting the crops that we're trying to grow. So, you know, there's pests and then there's also insects that are just in habitat. And so for entomology, when we talk about field crop protection, really we categorize pests as having economic levels of impact. So yield or quality being damaged, and so that's the bulk of the insects that I deal with in our field crops. Uh, insects like grasshoppers, like wheat midge, we've done a lot of work with ligus. These are all insect pests that have e economic implications to some of the crops that we're trying to grow and produce in some pretty high volume and also at some pretty high quality levels. So um, what are some of the most common offenders here in the Peace region when it comes to pests in, in forage and legume crops? Yeah, so that is a great question, and it's a very long list. Uh, the interesting things is that our growers here in the Peace River region grow quite a variety of different crops. Uh, when we talk about forages, again, you know, we've done a lot of work with forage seed production. Uh, creeping red fescue is the main crop, I would have to say, for most of the piece. However, you know, there are growers that are growing other species. We see more of the meadow brome, the smooth brome. We're seeing crested wheatgrass. Um, some growers are growing some very special types of grasses. And of course, then when we have these varieties of different host crops, uh, so too we sometimes have different suites of insect pests that are affecting them. Uh, when we start to look at some of our flowering crops like clovers and alfalfa, again, you know, these are different insects and still somewhat varied. But the interesting thing with clover and alfalfa is that some of our insect pests actually overlap. So when you're asking about pests, you're probably wanting to know more so about our economic pests and the ones that would have the biggest impact for our growers. They probably are still shortlisted to the grasshopper species that we commonly have to deal with. Um, many of our growers are still dealing with ligus and alfalfa plant bug, especially in clover and alfalfa seed production. Um, but probably cutworms would be another one that we're starting to see a little more often. And then there's actually quite a long list of other things. When we start to talk about pests and forage crops and those economic uh, and yield affecting species, what are kind of the thresholds that you think of when when does it go from a natural occurrence to an infestation or something that you have to start taking steps to manage? Right, and I think people will grapple a little bit with thresholds and knowing when to spray or when not to spray. 
So let me just step back here because what people need to start to kind of wrap their heads around is the fact that we use economic thresholds. And in entomology, um, essentially what scientists like me do is we actually look at insect plant relationships and it takes a lot of resources, a lot of time, but the idea is that we need to get a sense of what densities of which insect stage will start to cause economic levels of damage. And we have to look at this relationship really carefully based on inputs and outputs for those crops, because ultimately it is a question of protecting yield, but it's protecting from economic losses. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to the idea that we want, well, the premise here is that growers need to not necessarily manage every insect but they do need to be able to determine when a damaging population is there and act accordingly so that they protect themselves from economic losses. Because let's face it, ultimately, the goal is to, to make some money out of a field. Mm -hmm. So we look at economic thresholds and trying to define the relationship between an insect pest, its density, and whatever critical stage causes the damage, and looking at what are the ultimate yields that those populations would produce. We then look at where losses would start to be incurred at what specific density. And that starts to be how we define an economic threshold. Now, when we call it economic, we're actually telling what you should be inferring there, hopefully, is that it is based on some hard numbers. It's based on data. It's based on actual values of inputs, outputs, and densities of insects using a stratified sampling uh, program. And now that really sounds really complex, but basically what we're trying to tell you is in order to assess your insect populations, you want to use a standard method so that you can compare your densities to basically defined relationships and get consistent results. And that is always protecting your yield. So there are economic thresholds. There are sometimes things we call nominal thresholds. Now those are often a little different because they don't often have a whole bunch of data backing up what is called a nominal threshold. But nominal thresholds are sometimes based on a lot of experience. A good example of some nominal thresholds actually apply to some of our cutworm species. Uh, Cutworms is a large complex and it includes almost 20 different species. We can go right down into the nitty gritty. And some of those cutworm species have been studied for a hundred years across the Canadian prairies. The problem is cutworm outbreaks are very sporadic and they're very hard to predict. So what happens is all of these people who are trying to research them, they sometimes have a one to two year window that can happen anytime during their career and they try and study it and they get some really good data, but it's maybe not enough data to actually have a true economic threshold. However, they have very solid observations. They have good instincts for that insect and often that then becomes a nominal threshold. And quite honestly, nominal thresholds are used for many of our economic pests. They've been the only source of data and they've actually been pretty reliable for many of our insect pests across the Canadian prairies. So there's a couple different levels of thresholds as I've just described. Um, the other thing is really the basics of pest management is the idea though that growers don't need to manage every insect. And we're gonna talk about some biodiversity I think later on, 
And, and that's where it starts to become really important. It's not every insect, it's managing damaging populations. Awesome. So uh, I think we'll, we'll skip a little bit in the script. Yeah. When you do have something that has hit the economic threshold where it's starting to cause, cause damage, um, how do you go about choosing a control method? Because there's, there's lots of different stuff. And we'll maybe mention uh, integrated pest management a little bit lot later on as well. Mm-hmm. But how, how do you balance things like cost of production and preserving your yield and the pest population, that sort of stuff? What goes into yeah. choosing a control method? So, you know, there are a number of different control methods that growers have options for. And I think sometimes growers get caught up in the fact that they feel that they only have chemical control as an option. You know, um, there actually are a number of different cultural strategies that or a number of different control strategies growers have at their disposal. Uh, you know, cultural control. It's as simple as looking at rotations, choosing uh, their cropping practices and and just the alignment of their different crops. Uh, absolutely chemical control has been a very reliable uh, source of control, but there's also biological control. It's just a whole raft of different strategies. You know, we've been doing a lot of work with wheat mitch, and of course it's not a forage pest per se, but there's an insect pest that has everything from midge tolerant resistant cultivars. It has economic thresholds to actually apply insecticide. There's actually a lot of data looking at crop rotations. So growers actually have options. And I think sometimes they forget how much just choosing the crop and the cropping rotation, uh, it can have a huge impact. Now, for some of our forage growers don't have the same rotation periods that annual crops go through. But even so, looking at how they're managing their fields, how they're prepping their fields for certain crops, and looking at which crop and how you move in and out of your forages can be very important for things like even wireworms, and so too for grasshoppers to a certain extent. And certainly people that are growing uh, alfalfa seed production will tell you, of course, that rotating in and out of their crops can be very important for things like alfalfa plant bugs. Um, so cropping rotation can be really important. Now, when you were asking about how to choose controls, quite often we're dealing with growers who they're usually at the point where they have an urgent emerging problem. Let's say it is a grasshopper outbreak. So in those situations, if they've done all their other control things and tried to make the best choices for choosing which crop, choosing the rotation, managing the outsides of their fields as best they can, but they still have these outbreaking populations that are economically needing to be managed, then in most cases, chemical control is one of the most important and the quickest way to knock down these populations. I just really wanna emphasize the fact though that when growers are choosing to make that choice, you know, unfortunately, what we have for registered products are still pretty broad spectrum. And so what that means is that when they choose to use a registered insecticide, by and large, most of the products that are available will have, um, they're essentially going to kill all of the insects that are in that field. And so this is why we're always stressing to people, you know, please really be monitoring. Make sure you know whether or not you have an economically um, damaging populations before you spray. 
because actually spraying before you have damaging populations will kill all of those beneficial organisms. And most growers are very fortunate in the piece. We have a number of uh, pollinators, predators, but also parasitoids that actually have some pretty important regulating, um, regulating impact on some of our most important economic pests. Um, and so, you know, this is where, again, knowing what's in your field and making good decisions about control and when to act and using economic thresholds can actually really help preserve those beneficial populations, but also help growers uh, manage and protect themselves from economic losses. Awesome. And on that note, just with the beneficial insects and that sort of stuff, what, what do you look for when you're looking for beneficials in your in your crop, um, are there some signs and some things that you can watch out for just in general? So as an entomologist, we see insects differently than growers do. Um, more and more, you know, I'm so encouraged because I see more growers wanting to learn more about what's in their field and wanting to know how to identify them. And they're asking the same question you just asked me, what do I look for? Um, how do I maybe protect them? What's, what's good for them? How do I keep them in my field? So the great thing here is that first of all, growers need to understand that many of our beneficials, especially in the Peace River region, uh, they have a very unique set of species and the biodiversity that we have is pretty special. The other thing is it's mostly free. And this is why we don't want to affect them too much. We want them to be in there, establish and do their thing. And we, in a good situation, you won't notice them. However, you know, when we're asking growers to actually do that infill monitoring, that's when hopefully they're going to see more. So one of the best, most effective, cheapest ways to monitor in any field is always a sweep net. That's what I always recommend. It's so easy. And really, if worse comes to worse, if you don't have a sweep net, uh, even swinging a five-gallon pail through the canopy can be incredibly insightful. So when we're doing that same thing, we're doing sweep net collecting, one of the first things growers need to understand is that maybe in a decent year when we don't have outbreaking pest populations, uh, actually only a fraction of what's in that sweep net for insects is going to ever be a pest. So the flip side of that is, you actually have a lot of other insects that are not doing any harm, first of all, and many of them are actually beneficial. So we want growers to kind of take that away and, and remember, hey, a lot of what's in my field for insects is not that big a deal. And if anything, it's probably helping me. The, the good news is that there are actually a number of species. And when I say a number, when we collect some of our sweet net samples from things like uh, creeping red fescue or red clover that's going for seed, uh, it still is pretty impressive to me because there can be up to 40 different species in that sweet net collection. As I said wow. before, the majority of that are not insect pests. And in fact, it's really interesting because if we could ever show these bags to growers when we collect them, and we do like to do that, um, you know, we usually try to point out, look, you know, most of this bag, 80% of this is nothing for you to be concerned about. If anything, you've got beneficials in here, like pollinators, like parasitoids. 
Um, so sometimes, as long as it's not an outbreaking year and we don't have economic numbers of pests, by and large, most of our fields in the east are actually pretty pest-free. So the Canola Council of Canada and has done a lot of work in trying to promote beneficials, um, more so now in the last three, four years. We've also seen Western Greens Research Foundation put a lot of uh, support behind the initiative called Field Heroes. It's a, a really super initiative. And really for all crops, one of the good news stories is that we do have beneficial organisms in pretty much all of our fields. It's when we start to see that fields are getting a lot of insecticide applications that we start to see the diversity change. And that's right. something that growers need to kind of keep in mind. Yes, you might need to use chemical control, but understand that obviously you spray and there's really very little diversity because you killed everything. So some of the organisms that we're looking for and have done work with, we're very interested in the species of ground beetles that are available in our field crops. We've been looking at some of the parasitoids for many years. Um, our lab has done specific work with parasitoids of ligus, and that would be parastenis. We've also been looking at a number of parasitoids that have attacked cutworms. And this goes back to a project that we finished almost six years ago with the carp cutworm project. You know, one of the interesting things we found with that three-year study, we were monitoring cutworms from across the Peace River region. We actually collected from both annual and forage seed production fields. And one of the really impressive things to me is that the cutworms that we were finding Sometimes there was as high as 40% parasitism of these cutworms. We would bring them back to the lab and rear them through. Yeah, I mean, 40% is a big number. Add to that, some of those cutworm species are very difficult to manage through chemical control means because they're underneath the soil surface for a large portion of their life. Mm -hmm. So it's really intriguing to me because, first of all, some of the fields, and particularly some of our forage seed, and especially uh, some of the clover seed production fields, we would find some fairly high parasitism level of these cutworms. And it's really cool because these parasitoids, some of them are general and some of them are very species specific. That is to say, they're only trying to find one species of cutworm to parasitize. Some of them are just so efficient at finding individual cutworms down these little tunnels and underneath the soil surface in many ways, they're actually sometimes even more effective than the chemical control, which is basically, again, registered products that are fully or applied. Um, whereas these parasitoids can get down and actually find these cutworms in difficult places. And that's a natural form of control. 40% is really nothing to scoff at. Now, of course, I'm telling you the best news story, but... <laughs> The really cool thing that we would often see in these cutworm infested fields is, first of all, higher parasitism levels, but we would also see um, very easily ground beetles. And of course, ground beetles, several of those species even specialize on feeding on caterpillars or larvae. So they are actually really good at searching and finding cutworms. And so it's, it's kind of a unique system where uh, you know, Mother Nature has some things already at work, and sometimes we have to be, um, it's worth our time and effort to respect that because some of them are super efficient, maybe even more efficient than some of the 
chemical control options that we have available to us at this point. Of course, there are some newer products that are more, um, more uh, friendly to other insect groups, especially some of our pollinators. Uh, I don't really want to go into that in too much depth because we don't do efficacy work, but certainly, you know, we're hoping in the future that there's going to be better control options, particularly for chemical control for our growers, because we would really like to see more specificity, better protection of pollinators, but also some of these predators. You know, one of the other cool things that I wanted to talk about too is, particularly when we talk about grasshoppers, uh, right. You know, a lot of growers will never see the beneficial organisms that actually have a big role in regulation of grasshoppers, and that is actually diseases. Um, right. You know, yeah, so microscopic, but they also have a really big influence on stages that will never survive, so growers don't get to see that. But, you know, some of the grasshopper diseases that can have huge impact on populations um, they, they have tremendous influence. And there's actually a number of different species of diseases that can be in these outbreaking populations. So yes, you have to manage economic levels of these grasshopper pests, but it's very interesting. And I think a lot of growers don't always maybe recognize that these outbreaking populations very quickly, what seems to manage over the long term is actually disease outbreaks. Know if I answered your question because I got <laughs> distracted by the variety of beneficial organisms that are out there. But I think probably the takeaway for growers is that there's so much going on in their fields. And if they can just take a moment to actually start to learn more. I should also mention again about the Field Heroes though, Joanna, because the Field Heroes website, plus I know the Twitter feed, but especially the website. They are working to develop a number of resources so that growers can have some visual aids like photographs, like crop information uh, related to OKM and canola. Here's maybe four or five beneficial insects that I should watch out for. And so that link would be really great to emphasize too, because I do feel that growers are really wanting to know more and just needing to have some reliable resources is really helpful. For sure. About the Field Heroes website, too, that most people may or may not understand. Uh, Western Greens Research Foundation has put a lot of financial support into that. However, that initiative is very much working with our provincial entomologists and federal researchers, too, from across the Canadian prairies. And so it's super reliable information and it's yeah. valid information. So if you're going to Google anything, we would love for you to Google Field Heroes. Perfect. And I will put the link to that in, in the description of the podcast. So scroll Super. down and have a look. <laughs> All right. Let's see. I think it would be good to talk a little bit about integrated pest management and what it can look like on farm and, and what it is in general. Yeah. So uh, that is a huge topic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, so, you know, at a producer level, one of the most important aspects of integrated pest management is really the basic concept is relying on the fact that you, that growers need to be fairly aware of what's happening in their fields. So pest monitoring is one of those critical things and being able to identify things. And the big reasons I'm telling growers that is that they 
in order to manage something, you want to be able to identify what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. So the integral to what our lab does, but even so for growers, it's still very pertinent. Uh, the idea of knowing what's going on in your fields, getting current up-to-date infield information by scouting is so critical. Um, first of all, by knowing what's going on, you can start to build strategies for that season, but also start to build long-term, you know, multi-year plans for how you manage your land. I always remind producers that really they are their own land's best ecologists. You know, they've often been farming for decades. They know which part of the field produces well. They often know why. Um, and so that infield monitoring is just another piece of that puzzle in understanding their fields. And quite often, they are very astute. For example, you know, we talk to growers and they know they've got problems. They just need help to try and identify it. So that's where we come in, in terms of some of the insect monitoring that we do and the identification. But really, integrated pest management involves a lot of hands-on, knowing what your populations are, and then starting to look at what tools are available for us to manage and control. So, you know, it's looking at cultural control. It's looking at what kind of biological control is at work and can I preserve that? It is looking at chemical control sometimes for outbreaking populations. But, you know, knowledge, both in of what's there, but then also just pulling your resources together and knowing where to go for reliable information starts to be pretty critical for growers. So, you know, one of the things we're really hoping growers do take the time for is to do the infield scouting and to get a sense of what's actually in their fields. From that point on, making decisions on how to control and how to manage for the future, it becomes much easier. That's awesome. Yeah, I could go into like a whole lecture, but I don't feel like you need that (laughs) for this. Maybe a topic for a whole nother podcast episode. Yeah, well, and you know what? You actually started by asking about economic thresholds. And in fact, that is in right behind the monitoring. Because once people can identify and have some sense of what's going on in fields, then applying economic or action thresholds, if those are available, that starts to become really vital. And I think I did talk about it earlier. You know, it's not necessarily about managing every insect but it is about managing and comparing against these thresholds so that you can handle damaging populations and curtail losses so that producers are still able to produce. That's the key thing. That's awesome. I know you, you've got a ton of different projects at uh, the uh, AFC lab and Beaver Lodge and that sort of stuff. So where, where can people find that sort of information? How can they access some of this data? Yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, so I feel like last winter, one of the, in a normal year, usually uh, we're trying to make a big effort to share some of this information at our grower meetings that are regional. Um, in terms of some of the work that we're doing, um, you know, the goal is to try and be producing annual reports and sharing that information with growers and with the agri-industry. Um, ultimately, for us, because research is our primary uh, aim, we're often trying to be uh, publishing material into peer-reviewed scientific journals. 
Um, for the most part, one of the things that my lab has put a lot of emphasis in is trying to develop some information on our unofficial lab blog. Um, one of the things that I was finding uh, about eight years ago is that sometimes we would have outbreak years. Uh, folks would ask me very similar questions over a very short period of time. Uh, they would want to know where to find some of our preliminary results. So the lab blog is one place that we've started to develop a little bit so that people can hopefully find some information and more importantly, find resources that will help them. We're trying to kind of pull information together. But yeah, right now, I guess we've been trying to focus on getting some people going to the lab blog. It's been really important because uh, several of our projects, we have very close producer cooperator relationships. Uh, you know, these are the folks who are very generous in allowing us to access fields so that we can collect data from the region. And, that, you know, the lab blog has also been hopefully uh, helpful to those individuals so that we can keep them abreast of what we are doing. Right. Um, but, yeah, ultimately, you know, we are trying to get fact sheets, things like guides, like I've shared with you, uh, and get information into the hands of producers. And in a normal year, that's usually meant sharing at regional meetings, but you know, that's gonna to continue to evolve over these next, over this year and into the future. Definitely. Yeah, I know you've got a lot of great links here. So for everybody, even if you have just a passing interest in, in insects or any of this sort of stuff, definitely scroll down, check out all the resources in the um, yeah. You know, one of the great things too, I know the Wheatmitch forecast map for 2021 is out. The grasshopper forecast map is also out. Um, and then very shortly, all of the rest of the maps that report what happened in 2020 will also be available. So, you know, that's another resource that growers can actually start to look for now and start to access to help them plan for this growing season. You know, what is the risk in my geographic area? Does it look like it's going to be a bad wheat mid wheat mid year? Or uh, do we have to worry about grasshoppers? So, you know, that information actually is even available now. And, you know, for wheat midge, for our region in particular, that forecast map is actually incredibly helpful because growers can look at risk. They maybe can choose midge tolerant varieties now so that they're ready for seeding. Right. So there's just a whole bunch of stuff out there. And I think one of our roles is to try and make sure that some of that is more accessible and hopefully they're accessing reliable information to make sound best management decisions. Perfect. All right. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much for, for doing this, uh, this episode with me. I, I really appreciate it. I think this is Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening. Thank you.